You're listening to the CC Solicitors Podcast with Colleen Cleary, Claire Dawson and Regan O'Driscoll. Welcome to CC Solicitors Podcast. We're going to talk today about COVID-19 and redundancies and specifically regarding fair selection procedures. And I have here with me today a fantastic panel. I have my fellow partners, Regan O'Driscoll and Claire Dawson. And we're particularly excited to have a new panellist with us today, Claire Bruton, who's an eminent counsel and specialist in employment law. And so you're very welcome, Claire, to the panel discussion here today. Now, as the country eases out of lockdown, many people who have been temporarily laid off are returning to work. And unfortunately, some employers have suffered a huge decline in trade and revenue as a result of the pandemic and are facing uncertain times ahead and are, in fact, considering redundancies. Now, as we all know, the temporary wage subsidy scheme has been extended to 31 August 2020. And the reality is, is that there may be a number of employers will start to look at their business a little bit more closely. We certainly know at a senior level that employers are looking at their business and seeing whether there are particular roles or positions that they might make redundant or they may need to restructure. And really what we're looking at from this perspective in this discussion is what happens when organisations have to make those calls and have to kind of start those discussions. So we always think the kind of the first starting base here and when you're looking at a reorganisation or a potential redundancy is what is a redundancy? And it's really important to get it straight into your head or straight in your mind at the very beginning of the process, the kind of fundamental and key concepts that apply to a potential redundancy situation. So I'm just going to invite the first panellist here, Claire. And Claire, certainly when we're advising clients and we're looking at their businesses and helping them get their head head into the space as to whether something is a redundancy or not, perhaps you kind of reflect on what is a natural redundancy and what the key features are. Yeah, so a redundancy is a termination of employment by the employer, which is not related to the individual employee, but is related actually to their role and is wholly or mainly as a result of a set of different circumstances. And the most common of those circumstances are going to be where there is a complete closure of a business, there's a closure of a business in a particular location, or where there's less work to do, so fewer employees are needed for that reason. There's been a drop in trade, a drop in revenue, or where the employer has decided to do the work in a different way, which also results in fewer employees being required to do it. So those are the most common scenarios that that we would see when we're advising employers on redundancy. And I think one of the things that's very important for employers to remember when they're looking at this is that a redundancy is not about the individual, it's impersonal. It's about a role disappearing and a termination of employment resulting from that. And it's also about change. So the case law talks about two features, which are impersonality and change. So there must be something changing in your business or organisation in order for a redundancy situation to occur. Yes, and I think that's correct. I mean, we always talk about that it's the function that's redundant, not the person. And it's quite interesting because the legislation is quite extensive in its definition as to what a potential redundancy may be. And it's quite important to go back and look at those definitions. And sometimes, certainly in the course of um, the redundancy process or even in circumstances where an employee might challenge that termination, it is important to be able to articulate which category or which kind of definition of redundancy you're going to potentially be, be relying on. So 
very important to keep those things to the forefront of the mind. And I suppose then in that context, it's, it's very important to start at the process, the beginning of the process as to whether a situation or a reality situation might arise. And perhaps, Regan, you could reflect on why that is so important, why it's important to start at the beginning, to start at the process as to whether you know, the situation does in itself constitute a redundancy within the legal context of employment law. Yeah, it's pretty crucial and, and pretty basic, as there are a lot of crucial things, because redundancy is a potential fair reason for a dismissal. And it is it is used as a very good defence to uh, claims for unfair dismissal, but it can still give rise to claims for unfair dismissal. So you need to be really clear and very sure that you are on a firm basis before you proceed down the road of saying, OK, this is a redundancy and your job is going because of it. Employees with 12 months continuous service are entitled to claim unfair dismissal and they, they do so with, with regularity. Um, a maximum compensation uh, in such a claim is two years gross remuneration, which is uncapped, unlike in the, in the UK where it's captured a particular figure here. The only limit on it is that two years and also your obligation to mitigate your losses. So the employee has to go and try and get another job because the idea is it isn't that it's a massive windfall, it's to compensate them for their losses to date in terms of loss of income. So um, getting this wrong can be very expensive, particularly in circumstances where we're facing into potentially a fairly uh, long lasting recession and where there might not be a lot of jobs for somebody to go into. So by the time it comes up for hearing, they could end up getting something close to two years or even one year is still a lot for some salaries. Uh, and the, the most notable one that people will remember is that I think the 1.2 million that was awarded um, to one particular individual in, in a constructive dismissal case that was and not arising from redundancy. But it gives you an indication of the potential quantum here. So it's important to get it right early on. And when carrying out redundancies, individual redundancies or, or you know, whatever they be collective as they may be, but focusing on ind individual redundancies, employers really need to be sure that they have a firm basis for it. Um, so that they've considered all the factors that Claire detailed in terms of whether this is a redundancy or not, and they have decided it is. And secondly, carrying out a fair procedure in terms of affecting the redundancy. They need to apply fair and objective methods of selection. They need to consult with the affected employees for a reasonable period of time. I mean, it doesn't need to go on for months and months, but it should be something where they have a meaningful opportunity to be part of the discussion around the effect of this situation on their employment, because there's obviously going to be a fairly significant impact on their lives. And the employer is expected to look around and seek alternatives to the termination of this person's employment, uh, such as redeployment into another role if possible. Now, no employer is expected to create another role or anything like that, but you should be looking around to see what you can do to save the person's job if you can't, because it's a case of an entire department being gone or you know, financial devastation, so be it. But if you can, it's something you're expected to consider. The other thing I suppose you, you also have to consider in, in all of that is that employees with two years service or more who are made redundant are entitled to a statutory redundancy payment, which is tax free. And then I suppose going back to the point I made earlier about applying fair and objective methods of selection, just to touch a bit more on that, I know Claire, both Claire Dawson and Claire Bruton are going to kind of go into that in a bit more detail. But it is something that's very important to consider early on because you have to decide whether this is a standalone role or, you know, and look to see, is it a role where somebody is part of a, a pool, or as you would say, in this context, a pool of employees who should all go into some sort of selection matrix. So that's all that those these are all the things you need to look at very early on. 
Yes, I think so. And I think the way that we would normally approach it if we're assisting a client in, in a redundancy process is we first of all look at the fact of the redundancy. And the reason why we do that is because you have to be able to establish a fair reason for the termination and, um, mm. and whether it does come within the factual circumstances of a redundancy. I mean, we might assist clients in putting together a business plan and ensuring that, the, that any decision that they take is objective and business related in relation to the fact of the redundancy. And then yeah, as Regan's... Sorry, go oh, on, Regan. Sorry, sorry, Colleen. One of the things that, uh, that can come up in that context, actually, and when people are asking us for advice is something we will do is look at the overall context there and whether there might be any challenges in terms of people saying that, you know, a month ago you were attacking me because of my performance. So, you know, the, we, what we will help with is creating, I suppose, clear blue water between any other factors that might point at a different reason for the dismissal. Um, and I suppose alert employers to the risk of, of, of that. And that's important, Regan, because, you know, I think the earlier you consult, the quicker, the better. Because we would advise clients, we'd essentially say to them, look, you can't ride two horses. You know, you've got to decide whether you're going down a performance route or a reorganisation or redundancy route. So early advice is really important because then you can start lining things up as best um, uh, commercially as, as you may need to do uh, as to whether when the kind of commercial decisions which have to be objective and not related to the individual's performance or conduct directly. It's more about the performance of the business and the requirement for the roles. And you need to get that clear in your head at an early stage because that will infiltrate and impact on any decisions that you make in relation to establishing the fact as to whether there is a potential fair redundancy situation that exists. And then in that context, once you have the fact of the redundancy is what Regan's alluded to there as well, is whether the process is the process fair. So there's two boxes to tick. Is there redundancy? Number two, is there a fair procedure being applied when you're relying on this reason to terminate somebody? And Regan, you alluded there to whether establishing if somebody is in a standalone position, which I think is a little bit more straightforward if you're collapsing individual roles, particularly at a senior level. Uh, that tends to be where the standalone roles are. Would you agree with that? I would, yeah. I mean, because I suppose the more the higher you go up the chain, usually there are fewer of particular um, roles. So I mean, the obvious example is you know you're not you're rarely going to have two managing directors. So if you're getting rid of a managing director, it is going to usually be a standalone role. And then I mean, there, there are complications that arise in relation to the uh, collapse of standalone roles sometimes because it can, you know, it can be harder for employers to defend the accusation that somehow that person is being targeted where there's only one. But on the other hand, there's a simplicity to it. When you have a case where you have um, 20 salespeople and due to whatever reason, because uh, the market isn't there anymore or you've ha you're having financial difficulties and you need to reduce it down to 12 salespeople, how do you select the eight people that are going to go? And that's something that needs to be looked at very early on as well. So, you, you know, it, these, these are factors that can be quite key to, to look at. Yeah. And I think, Claire, you have some kind of reflections on that, the kind of the practical solutions to the scenario that Regan suggested there, uh, where you're actually selecting people that are at the same level. And with the kind of advice that we give clients where there is, um, uh, you know, essentially potentially 20 salespeople, you have to reduce the team by eight. You know, where would, where do you go from there? What's the process that you might follow in relation to that? Yeah, well, I think the first thing to get right there is who is in the pool for selection? Who are the correct people to be in the pool for selection? Because otherwise you can be criticised for ring fencing someone by not including them in the pool. So if you're looking to reduce your team by a certain number of people at a particular level of seniority, 
then make sure you include everybody who's at that level in the pool for selection. And then you need to work out how are you going to choose the individuals who are going to be made redundant. And the best way to go about it, usually, we would say, is to choose criteria, maybe three to four criteria, not too many criteria. Weight them appropriately in relation to how important they are to you in the running of your business. And then you score everybody in that pool for selection against those criteria. We would say try to make sure that they are criteria which can be measured objectively by reference to sort of facts and figures if possible, because obviously that leaves less scope for it to be um, a subjective decision. So do you have particular KPIs? Do you have particular sales targets, production revenue, new business generated, and therefore use those kind of numeric performance indicators to judge the individuals in that pool against? You might look at things like appraisal rating from the previous year, but of course, then you can get into difficulties if people say that the appraisals were not properly done. So that might be one of your criteria, but it might not be the one with the highest uh, weighting. Some employers like to rely on things that they see as totally non-personal and impersonal, such as last in, first out. Some will say, well, something like timekeeping and attendance, if it's very important in the role for them to have staff on the shop floor at a certain time in the day, for example, those are factors that they take into account. But um, those factors can be vexed, although they seem to be very objective and fair. They can be vexed from the point of view of discrimination, because, of course, if you judge someone's attendance or timekeeping, you may put people with a disability at a disadvantage. It may put people who have childcare responsibilities and and sometimes just have to run a little late because of that uh, at a disadvantage in the selection process. So you do have to be quite careful when you're looking at how to select and what criteria you're going to use. And I know uh, Claire Bruton's going to talk a little bit more about um, discrimination and how that can feed into this. Thanks, Claire. And I suppose like it's important to share that criteria with your employee. It's important to um, take detailed notes as well. Um, and we can talk a little bit more later on about um, about the actual process itself. But um, yeah, I'd like to introduce Claire Bruton now, counsel, um, specialist in employment law, uh, and to kind of comment on some nuances around selection and specifically around maternity age and disability. Claire, could I just welcome you to the podcast and, and you know, welcome your comments on those few points that I've just mentioned there? Yes, thank you. Thank you, Colleen. And obviously, thank you to everybody in CC Solicitors for asking me to participate in this podcast. I'm delighted to be invited. I suppose just at the outset, I agree with the importance of establishing the factor for the dismissal in terms of redundancy and the process and the criteria that you've just been mentioning, Colleen and Claire and Regan. And I think in the context of considering the discrimination element, that is even more those type of uh, very careful consideration are even more important. And I suppose if we start initially with pregnant employees and whether an employer can dismiss an employee who was pregnant or on maternity leave by reason of redundancy, that is an issue that arose significantly during the last recession, both in terms of pregnant employees having their employment terminated ostensibly by reason of redundancy and employees returning from maternity leave having their employment terminated very shortly thereafter. So if we look at pregnancy, as you know, pregnancy 
is a protected ground under the Employment Equality Act and it's highly protected as a matter of law. In fact, an employer has to show exceptional reasons unconnected to the pregnancy to justify a redundancy. And there's been a number of Labour Court decisions concerning pregnancy and redundancy. And in fact, a recent Workplace Relations Commission decision concerning the termination of employment of a pregnant employee where €55,000 was granted by way of compensation. That just shows you the level at which the seriousness level at which uh, dismissals of employees on grounds of pregnancy are taken. And the, the reason for that is that it's highly protected as a matter of health and safety and also as a matter of equality. And in terms of dealing with pregnant employees in the context of redundancy, I suppose there has to be a health warning attached to a pregnant employee being terminated by reason of redundancy. And it's really important that notes are kept of the reason for the selection of that employee. And that, in fact, has been established in a court of justice of the European Union's decision, which established that a an employee who's pregnant can be terminated when they are pregnant for highly exceptional reasons unconnected to pregnancy. But the court said quite clearly that the selection cannot be in any way related to pregnancy or absences due to pregnancy or maternity leave, but that very detailed notes need to be kept in writing of both the reason for the termination of employment and the selection criteria. And without that, an employee is very likely to have a good claim of discrimination on grounds of gender, a pregnant employee. It is also noteworthy that as a matter of law, an employer can take positive steps to protect pregnant employees and decide to essentially take them out of the selection process, having regard to the very high level of proof required. Some employers choose to do that, some don't. In terms of maternity leave, again, an employee coming back from maternity leave is coming back from a highly protected period and is entitled to her job back or to a suitable alternative unless that's not possible. And obviously employees who take maternity leave and the extended maternity leave can be absent from the workplace for up to one year. And it's very easy for an employer to take account of their absence from work in terms of selecting an employee for redundancy at a practical level. And that simply is not permissible as a matter of law. In terms of dealing with employees who are on maternity leave, if an employee's employment is terminated while they're on maternity leave, that's illegal and void. It cannot take place. It can only take effect after the maternity leave. And a lot of employers grapple with the issue of whether to consult with the employee during maternity leave if there is a restructuring or redundancy process ongoing. My view is that transparency and communication with all employees, but particularly in the context of employees who may be protected under the Employment Equality Acts, is really important. So as a matter of law, there's no requirement on uh, an employer to stay in touch with an employee during maternity leave, but it's preferable for the employee to be contacted to just to notify the employee on maternity leave in relation to restructuring and to reassure the employee that it'll all be dealt with when she comes back from maternity leave. If the employee decides they don't want any further contact, then so be it. But I think it puts the employer on the back foot if an employee hears that, hears about restructuring or potential redundancies while they're on maternity leave from their colleagues and not directly from their employer. Turning then to disability discrimination, I agree fully with Claire in relation to the idea of absenteeism being vexed in terms of it being a selection criteria. And because it 
essentially it could be a disability under the Employment Equality Acts. Now, the case law has very much changed and turned against the definition of disability as a matter of Irish law. It used to cover, be seen to be covering temporary disabilities or temporary absences from work. There's more recent decisions from the Labour Court that seem to take a more nuanced approach and say it has to be long-lasting in nature. So therefore, occasional absences for just ordinary illnesses as opposed to disabilities may be okay. But employees who are on long-term sick leave or have a disability of which the employer is aware, an employer needs to be very careful in terms of using that as a, as a criteria. And finally, the final ground that I see being quite prevalent in challenges to redundancies under the Employment Equality Acts is age. And I've certainly seen that in my practice since the COVID-19 pandemic commenced in terms of layoff and we can anticipate then redundancy. Employees who are close to retirement age or coming up towards retirement age may have their employment terminated because the employer may realise that there are considerable issues with defending a termination of employment by reason of a retirement age if there's no objective reasons to justify it. And that's certainly something I have seen. But I think the key message in terms of redundancy and selection of redundancies to try and avoid Employment Equality Act complaints of discrimination would be transparency, clear criteria. And the message that comes across is certainly from reviewing the case law is that there can be very high awards given, as as Regan has said. And in fact, in pregnancy or maternity leave dismissals, an employee can go to the circuit court and bring proceedings in the circuit court where the jurisdiction is unlimited. But that recent Workplace Relations Commission decision that I referred to, where €55,000 was given in a pregnancy-related dismissal case, also shows that the Workplace Relations Commission and indeed the Labour Court are willing to give high awards, irrespective of the loss of earnings or mitigation of loss of the employee concerned, unlike, for example, the Unfair Dismissals Act. Thanks, Claire. And I think that is really important. I mean, they tend to be the areas where we tend to advise on, and certainly in our practice, is those more nuanced, trickier issues around someone on maternity leave, someone returning from maternity leave, somebody on long-term sick, somebody nearing their the retirement age. They are the ones that um, I think can, because of the discrimination angle, the propensity to higher compensation awards, and specifically, as you've already, as you suggested there, from uh, pregnancy discrimination and gender discrimination, which can be potentially unlimited in the circuit court. There are potential reasons as to as to why you should take particular advice on those specific categories of employees. And the other thing you alluded to there, Claire, as well, is that you know, insofar as you know, this is what's happening to people on layoff, and there's bit bit of a misnomer at the moment where people are perceiving because they've laid off staff or perceiving because um, you know people have been put on short time that that automatically lays a kind of safe pathway to make that individual redundant and uh, and I think probably Regan you'd agree with me that you you really need to be careful heading down that track um, and that you need to keep you still need to maintain a clean redundancy process even though you may have had a proportion of say your female staff on short short working weeks or your staff that have been put on um, proper layoff, you still have to go through that process. The statutory process, the statutory regime that's required before you can make someone fairly redundant. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, you always want to create the best defence for yourself. I mean, at the end of the day, at some point, most employers are going to face some legal challenge to decisions they make. And, you know, redundancy is, is no, it's no less possible there than anywhere else, um, despite the fact that it is in, in theory, you know, it is impersonal uh, when it's when it is done correctly. So you just want to make sure that you don't get caught on procedural 
issues. Often people will think they're doing the fair thing just because there is a basis for a redundancy and they just forget about the procedural aspect of things and they don't keep a proper paper trail as well, uh, which is something that even, you know, when you're communicating with employees, if you don't have a proper paper trail there, you leave yourself open to accusations that you didn't say what you said, what you said, or that you said things that you didn't say. And this can happen. We do see it happen, I know, from time to time, particularly when there are redundancy programmes that affect people on maternity leave, that because everybody gets on very well, there's a degree of informality in terms of how the employee is approached. And because of that, sometimes misunderstandings arise that then lead to certainly threats of claims upon the return to work or, you know, return to work at which point redundancy notice issues and um, because the employee feels that something different was said to them. If you have a proper paper trail, there can never really be any meaningful or reasonable suggestion of that. It's very clear that what you're saying to them is you are in scope. Very clear, you know, the long and the, the, long and the short of it is keep records, put it in writing, take advice. And I think that, you know, when we say keep records, you've got to also be aware uh, that can you know slightly work against employers sometimes in a, a redundancy process. A bit of a damned if you do, damned if you don't. But it's better you are aware that anything you do put in writing, and if it is challenged, could be potentially accessed under a data access request. Oh, um, yes, that's the take advice part. That's yeah, the, that's yeah. The, yeah. And I think, I think, Colleen, one of the things there is that actually if you take advice, uh, you have a meeting and you sit down to discuss what the plan for the redundancies is with your solicitors, then that advice is legally privileged and, and the contents of that meeting uh, are privileged and any follow-up telephone calls you have with your lawyer to take advice are also privileged and wouldn't be disclosable if a data subject access request is made by the individual. I have certainly seen cases where individuals have asked for all the information about the redundancy planning process in relation to them and any emails that passed between HR and their manager, for example, in relation to planning the redundancies. And it's thrown up some very interesting emails where, for example, it was clear that the person had been selected for redundancy maybe three or four weeks before the selection process had actually taken place and the scoring had been done. Uh, and there, there you'll have an individual say, well, look, I was targeted and it was discriminatory or it was unfair or it was both. And so it, it is important if, you know, in terms of keeping your records, that it's very carefully thought through the timing of, of every decision that's made and the paperwork to support that. Yes, I think that's true. And, and that's something to really keep a keen eye on that, um, you know, what you'll put down on paper may be discoverable, disclosed at a future date. And really, it's just about it's not not to be over anxious about that, but just to be aware that it, when you're writing an email, when you put in together a selection process as you're sending stuff out, just be aware that, that that may be shared at a future date. And it just makes you I think it does ultimately um, ensures that you conduct a better process and a more documented process than perhaps you might otherwise not have done if you didn't think it was going to be disclosed. But just to be prudent and to be careful our role in these situations is always really just to sort of work with our clients and to sort of litigation proof any kind of steps that they take. And the good news really is, is that redundancy, because it's impersonal, because you've got to establish the fact and you've got to follow a procedure and process, if you do that correctly, it's a very strong defence to a claim of unfair dismissal. I mean, Claire, would you agree with that from your sort of practice area in court, that it's, it's one of the more solid reasons for defending a claim for unfair dismissal? 
Yes, I would, Colleen. In fact, particularly in the context of, say, high court employment injunctions, where the courts have made it quite clear that a termination by reason of redundancy cannot be challenged in the high court. But even outside of that, certainly in the context of the statutory claims for the Workplace Relations Commission and the Labour Court, redundancy, because it is impersonal, albeit that there is a level of fair procedures which arise in the context of establishing fair procedures which can be personal. The the case law is very clear and if an employer follows the, the case law clearly, transparent transparency and communication such as seeking alternatives, as, as Regan referred to, there's a much better chance of being able to defend that case. Whereas, by example, dismissal for by reason of performance or misconduct are far more vexed in terms of being able to defend them. There's just one further point I think I'd like to make in relation to the selection criteria. And it just struck me when Regan and, and Claire and Colin, you were speaking. If selection criteria are being considered or being changed. The idea of these criteria being fair and lawful and non-discriminatory is dangerous from the from an employer's perspective, in my view. It's important that they're looked at very clearly and considered whether any discrimination element arises, either directly or indirect discrimination, because assumptions can easily give rise to unintended discrimination on the part of an employer who may feel that the selection criteria are fair lawful and non-discriminatory. And that's why it's really important that employers take advice prior to commencing the process and setting the selection criteria. Yeah, and I think that's right, Claire. And I think that's a really good point to, to end on. I mean, we are all individuals. We all have our own personal biases and approaches. You know, when we talk about objective criteria, what you think initially is objective may not be. So like, you know, if you have an appraisal system that isn't really up to standard, it's going to probably be more of a subjective view as opposed to an objective view. So I think, yes, you're right on that, that you just need to sound check those criteria, get them correct and get your process correct. And you should be in a strong position to defend any kind of future claims on this. Well, that's great. Thank you very much to my fantastic panel today, Claire, Claire and Regan. Thank you very much. And thank you for listening to CC Solicitors podcast. Please join us again for another podcast in our series in the coming weeks. Thank you very much. Bye now. You've been listening to the CC Solicitors podcast. For more information or to get in touch, visit ccsolicitors.ie.